rest of us. Let me have you turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find James chapter 1 on page 1700. So we're going to get back to our study here in James that we've called uh, Down to Earth. After being away for a couple of weeks, we had uh, the missions conference, and then last week we observed the Lord's table, so kind of went a different direction in the message, but now we'll get back to the book of James. And there is an American humorist named Finley Peter Dunn. I don't know if any of you ever heard of him. He grew up in Chicago, and he was a featured writer in, in most of the Chicago newspapers. He has a long, uh, long resume of papers for which he's written, during the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So most of us don't remember reading that in real time. But Dunn's most successful articles were printed under the pen name of a fictional Irish immigrant who resided in South Chicago named Mr. Dooley. And, and Mr. Dooley would talk about the political and social issues and the political personalities of his day. And in time, Mr. Dooley became syndicated nationally, and it said that Teddy Roosevelt was a fan of his, and that the articles were read regularly at cabinet meetings in the White House during the Roosevelt presidency. Now, even though uh, Dunn was a journalist, while writing as Dooley, he, he, you know, he was a satirist, and he, he mocked the hypocrisy and self-importance of the news media itself with these words. He said, the newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks. It commands the militia. It controls the legislature. It baptizes the young. It marries the foolish. It comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. It even buries the dead. Now, now many of us have heard one little phrase, right, from that statement before, the idea about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I've, I've heard people say, I think that's in the Bible. You know, I've heard it used frequently in reference of what, what preaching is supposed to do. It's supposed to comfort the afflicted, and it's supposed to afflict the comfortable. Well, well now you know where it came from. I don't know if that will encourage you to, to use it or not use it, but in any event, that's, that's where it came from, from this uh, 1900s-era comedian, we might say. But even though the expression itself isn't found in Scripture, it, it does accurately describe how the scripture affects us. You know, God uses his word to comfort us when we're suffering. And he also uses his word to kind of shake us up when we get too comfortable and start forgetting God. And our text this morning says, says that idea, conveys that thought about as straightforwardly as anywhere in the Bible. So we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 11 in James chapter 1. And this text gives us some truth that should comfort the, the poorest and most afflicted among us. And it should also humble the most lofty in our midst, so to speak. So let's look and see how these words challenge each one of us to look to the Lord, whatever our material and financial status. Follow along here as I read these three verses. James 1, verses 9 through 11. James says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. 
so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now what James wants to do here is confront us with this question, I would suggest. You know, this is another of those rubber meets the road, down to earth kind of things that, that James is trying to accomplish. And here's the question that he has for us as believers. You know, in the temporal, materialistic culture in which we live, what is really most important to you? You know, what do you hold on to? What, what establishes value in your thinking? That's what James wants us to consider. In the temporal, materialistic culture we live in, what is really most important to you? So with that in mind, I've, I've entitled the message this morning, Comforting the Afflicted and Afflicting the Comfortable. So let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Now, Father, we are grateful for your grace in our lives. We're thankful, Father, that though in, in earthly life we may experience uh, ups and downs, so to speak, we may go through some deep waters. We may be tried and tested and, and tempted. And yet, Father, through it all, your grace is sufficient. Your care for us is never diminished. And yet, Father, we tend to be a people so easily distracted by the cares, by the concerns, by the ambitions of earthly living. And I pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to confront us with our own comfort, to challenge us about what is to us truly important, and to sure, assure us about the amazing eternal truth that if we know Jesus as our Savior, nothing else matters. We have security, we have care, we have a relationship with you that transcends all the difficulties of life. I pray, Father, that you would empower that which I would speak this morning, guide my thoughts and words, and Father, open the hearts, the minds, the souls of these dear folks here that we might hear from you through your word and that your spirit might apply it in our lives exactly as needed for our growth and for your glory. So we commit this time to you now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, as we prepared for the Lord's table, I preached a message that I had entitled The Paradox of Christ's Suffering. And we talked about the idea of of a paradox, being something that seems self-contradictory. It's kind of a puzzle. The, the aspects of it don't really mesh together. It doesn't always seem to make sense. Well, since last week, I stumbled onto a more vivid uh, definition, if you will, of a paradox given by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton described a paradox this way. He said, a paradox is a truth standing on its head and shouting for attention, okay? So let, let that word picture sink into your mind, right? Something, someone standing on its head, shouting for attention. And, and that's what James does in this text. He uses a paradox. He takes something that seems to be upside down, something that doesn't seem to fit together, something that seems maybe a little bit contradictory in order to grab our attention. And here's what he says in essence. He says, if you're poor, boast in your riches. 
And if you're rich, be glad you're poor, right? It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. He says, well, if you're poor, you should, you should rejoice, boast in your riches. Well, how does that fit? He says, and if you're rich, be glad you're poor. How, do, how does that fit? What are we to take away from that? And so that's what I want us to do this morning is try to make sense of, of the point James is making and, and, and recognize that, you know, when we get right down to it, it's not James' point, right? James is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It's God's point for us. You know, God is using this this paradox, this truth stood on its head and shouting for attention to get our attention and to cause us to consider what it means in our lives right here, right now, in this day, even as James wrote it, intending it initially for those early readers. So let's first of all see how James offers some comfort for the afflicted. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 9 says, Let the brother of low degree... Rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, in earlier messages here in the book of James, we've talked about the fact that James is writing to people who are experiencing great trials. One writer described James' readers as people who are being hammered by life. They're they're suffering in many ways, and it's a sweet pastoral instinct for James to want to remind them again, in the midst of all their suffering, suffering, what is actually important in life, lest they be worn down by the pressures of life. He wants to help them keep a right perspective, a spiritually healthy perspective. And so he says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. So let's just comment on a few of the words in that expression, first of all. The the idea of low degree translates a single Greek word that in its most basic meaning means low to the ground. Okay, that's it's the idea of just being low, right? Being close to the earth. And the word exalted, that word actually means to be high up, okay? And, and let me talk about one more word in this phrase, and it is the word rejoice, and that's not the word that normally means rejoice. Really, the meaning of the word is to boast, to, to glory in something. So if we were to translate this verse in a strictly literal way, it would sound something like this. Let the one who's low to the ground boast in his great height. Okay, that's, that's, that's what he says just in the, the plain, simple language of the text. Obviously, he's, he's got meaning beyond just the, the height aspect of it. I may have told you this before at the, at the Naval Academy. Strangest thing. Maybe this is true in all of the middle, military. I don't know. But when we would line up in formation to march somewhere, the tall people always went in front, and the short people always went at the back end. Okay? And, and you know how it is, whenever there's a line, things naturally spread out, spread out. So the people setting their pace are the guys with the 36-inch inseam, and the ones with the 26-inch inseam are at the back, and as they lag further and further behind, you know, they're walking like this, trying to keep up. And, and we had a term for those short people. We called them sandblowers, okay? I wasn't the ultimate sandblower, but I was on that end of the spectrum, but we called them sandblowers. The idea is they're so low to the ground, you know, that, that they're just, as they breathe, they're blowing the sand around, okay? So, so short people, you know, this little, little phrase was they were sandblowers. Well, James isn't really saying, let the sandblowers boast in how tall they are, even though that's what it says, literally. But he's talking in the concept of where you, where you fit into the culture. You know, let, let the one whose status in life is low. You know, it's, it's at the very bottom. Let the believer, right? He says, brother, 
Right? Let the brethren, okay? He's talking about believers. He said, if you're a believer, even though your status in life may be the very least, even though you're of humble circumstances, even though you're of limited means, even though you are poor, brother, he says, let's, let's rejoice. Let's boast in the true riches that you have. You know, in terms of his original audience, I think James is thinking in particular of the many poverty-stricken Jewish Christians who were poor because of their faith and because they were economically low. They were, they were low in the eyes of the world, and no doubt in many instances they kind of were low in their own eyes. I mean, they didn't have much influence. They weren't very well regarded. They were many times even ostracized. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. And before we go on from there, folks, let let me just make this observation. It is easy for us to be affected by the culture's outlook on things. Okay. In case you haven't noticed, we live in a materialistic, pleasure-centered, right-now kind of culture. Right? I I want it, and I want it now. You know, it's very temporal. You know, eternity. People don't think about eternity. Spirituality, people don't think about true spirituality. To them, maybe spirituality is feeling, you know, close to the universe or or close to God, and and it has to do with how they feel and and how important it makes them. But they aren't thinking in terms of true spirituality. They're not thinking in terms of eternity on whole. You know, and comparatively speaking, we live in a in a country that, that we would say was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic that embraced many Christian principles where, where we can go out and stand on that street corner and say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and it's unlikely that we will be arrested, incarcerated, or killed for saying that. So, I mean, on the scheme of things, we live in a more Christian-tolerant world than many, many places. But the fact is, the bulk of folks in our world are driven by materialism and by commercialism and, and by the temporal and the here and the now and what I have and what I feel and life is about me. And folks, the problem is that it rubs off on us. You know, Jesus washed the disciples' feet because when you're walking in the world, you get dirty. And, and if you're not cleaning up, if, if you're not cleansing that, you stay dirty. And, and we get contaminated by the world's thinking. And even as believers, you know, we can reach that point where we're living largely materialistic, commercialized, temporal, my comfort, my pleasure, here and now way of approaching life, even as true believers. And so as a result, those who maybe don't have, you know, all that the the world has to offer, the world says, you're not worth much, you know. You don't, you don't drive a Lamborghini. You don't command a huge salary. Your house isn't the penthouse. Your job isn't the top of the heap. You're not very important. And as Christians, we can get to believing that. You know, and so when we get a little bit frazzled in our, in our financial situation, something breaks and we don't have the resources, we begin to think that something's wrong and we think, oh, to be like this person who has a big bank account and they don't have to worry or think about those things and we begin to forget about God. And James says, you know, when you're getting caught up in that, when you're feeling sorry for yourself, when you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a brother of low degree, right? I don't have much. World doesn't think much of it. He says, remember, you're rich. Boast in your riches. Rejoice in your riches. 
James is reminding us that as a believer standing in the midst of nothing, you can say, by the miracle of the grace of God, I have been invited into a personal relationship with the King of kings and Lord of wards, and in that I am truly rich, right? My sins have been forgiven. God cares for me. He died for me. He's given me eternal life, which is much more important than a comfortable earthly life. I've experienced the grace of God. I'm I'm a child of the King, as we say. I have all the inheritance that God has given to his own son. We share in that. Christ lives in me. Hallelujah. And, and, And that's what James is saying. You know what? Don't be overcome by harsh circumstances. Don't be bothered by the fact that you don't have much in terms of earthly riches and earthly influence and and earthly recognition. Realize, boast in, if you want. It doesn't mean pridefully, but I mean acknowledge, recognize, rejoice. Let it be known that, you know what, I am rich. I am rich. I am rich because I have all these things in Christ. And folks, that is something that is worth boasting about and rejoicing about that we who have trusted in Jesus are children of the King. We have an eternal inheritance that no one, however wealthy, however influential, however powerful, however antagonistic to the gospel, no one can take it away. We don't need to worry about earthly poverty and hardship because God's grace is sufficient. And, And even when faced with the severest, of of impoverishment, still, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. You know, we will rule and reign with him forever and ever. We belong to him, as Jeff has talked about today. You know, we're held in his hands. And, And all those things that the world says, oh, this makes for a rough life. You know, you don't have much. You're not worth much, right? We talk about people's net worth. You know, what a sad commentary. I understand the, the context, but, but you know, that's not where worth comes from. It doesn't come from the size of our bank account. Our worth comes by the fact that God loved us so much that he gave his life, that he shed his blood so that we might have life. We have been created in the image of God, and though we're fallen and though we are sinful, God has restored us to himself. He's given us eternal life, and one day in heaven, even the sin nature is going to be gone, and we will be glorified, and we will stand by his glorified throne, and we will rejoice with him and serve him with all the excitement and enjoying all of the the wealth, if you will, the riches of eternity. Every one of us who knows Jesus as your Savior, that's true for you. And let me tell you, that's got it way over having a a bottomless bank account. Way over having all of the comforts and, and pleasantries that this temporal earth offers us. That's the comfort James offers to those who are seemingly afflicted in terms of their earthly status. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is truly lifted up. He's truly exalted. He's truly rich. So in verse 9, James offers comfort for the afflicted. Then in verses 10 and 11, he provides some affliction for the comfortable. Okay? He says from verse 10, he says, But the rich, the rich should rejoice in that he is made low. The one who is wealthy should rejoice in his lowliness. Again, it's a paradox, right? The one who is wealthy rejoice that you have nothing. Rejoice that you are low. Rejoice that you, you don't have anything to offer. Here's the other side of the coin. If you were the richest man on earth, if you had more esteem of human beings than anyone has ever had, if you had more influence than any man has ever been able to acquire, still you stand before God in the exact same way as the poorest of men. 
Because in terms of God's favor, in terms of God's grace, in terms of His love, all of those things, wealth and position and influence, all of those things mean nothing. Not a thing. Listen, folks, grace absolutely levels the playing field. The New Testament tells us that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, to the the lowly, to those who, who recognize how far they fall short of a holy and glorious God. The man of grand possessions and grand accomplishments and grand power stands before God just as one who is unable to earn, deserve, or merit God's favor and approval. Every person, man or woman, boy or girl, young or old, eloquent or tongue-tied, influential or of no account in our society's eyes, every person is received by God only because of the sacrifice of Jesus and only because they have come to Him on humble, lowly terms, understanding that they deserve nothing, that they've earned nothing, that they are no more valuable than anyone else. Sometimes we sing the hymn, My faith has found a resting place. And the refrain goes, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You know, folks, No one is going to purchase their way into heaven. No one's going to earn their way into heaven, either financially or even by their good efforts or or noble manner of living because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. The only plea we have is that Jesus died, and he died for me. He died to pay the penalty for my sins. And that, folks, is the essence of the gospel. Some, Some people say, well, James isn't really a gospel book. You know, it, it's kind of, it has all this emphasis about, about works and living things out or whatever. James is very much a gospel book. It's right here among other places that, you know what, the riches come by humbling ourselves. The riches come when we realize that what we have, we have in Christ and in Him alone, not in anything that we bring, not in anything that we offer, not in anything that we do, none whatsoever. In fact, if we cry to think that we can earn or deserve, we have held at bay the grace of God. And we are, in fact, utterly lost. Prosperity may seem to be important, but God didn't create us in order to be comforted. He made us to have a relationship with Him. And His point here is that if you're wealthy, if God's allowed you to have the privileges of this life, then you need to realize that those privileges and that wealth doesn't affect the most important thing in the universe, and that is having that relationship with Christ for which you have been made. Brother Micah had us take a deep breath, right? God gives us breath so that we can engage in a relationship with Him. That is His purpose for each and every person. Not that we can earn a lot of money, you know? God may give you the, the, the blessing of earning a lot of money, and, and if you handle those riches wisely, you know, that doesn't have to be a detriment. But that's not why he made you. He, he didn't make you to be smart. You know? God's made you smart. Well, praise the Lord. Be thankful for that. Use it to teach and help others. But, but that's not why he made you. He, he, he didn't make you for all the good that you can do. We ought to do good things. Ultimately, as believers, God wants to use us to accomplish good things, but he made us to have a relationship with him and, and to dwell with him and to let him then work in our life and live out his life through our lives. That's what we've been made for, for a relationship with him. And so it's interesting here in our text, rather than James pitying his poorer brethren, 
rather than encouraging others to commiserate with them. James actually sees having limited economic means as being a spiritual advantage, and he sees being rich as something of an obstacle. So let's go back to our text, right? He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's actually rich, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth. And the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And he uses some imagery there. He, he goes back to uh, an expression from Isaiah about the grass withering, the flower fading. And, and he talks about if you go over into the, the Israelite culture in Palestine there, there would be these hot and dry winds that, that can cause you know, flowers and things to wither literally overnight. Even at night, there are hot and dry times. And he says, you know, you've all seen this. You, know, you, you look at the beauty of the flower one day, and the next day it's wilted and dying. You, you look at the, the lush green grass, and a couple days later it's brown and trampled underfoot. And James says that, you know what, if you're, if you're holding fast to possessions and, and riches and these things of the earth, they're just like that flower. They may look good now, but not tomorrow. Just like that grass. They may seem lush and, and fertile and pleasant now, but, but down the road, they won't be. The point of his saying this is, is, is not, he's not saying that it's wrong to have things. But the issue is when we allow our possessions or our pursuit of possessions to rule us. Right? We, we all understand that money isn't the root of all evil, but the love of money is. That's why Jesus warns about the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew 13, 22. It's why Paul says this in 1 Timothy 16. He says, charge them that are rich in the world that they be not high-minded, right? They need to be lowly, that they don't trust in uncertain riches because those riches are going to go away, but they trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, everything that we have in every realm, spiritual, material, everything. God has, is the, the source of that, the author of that, and he give us, gives it to us richly, and our focus needs to be on him. And that's why Jesus, we, have, we find that account where Jesus talks with the so-called rich young ruler. And he says something to us that's a little bit unsettling. You know, The young man comes, and, and, and Jesus says, you know, what, what are the commandments? He says, hey, I've kept them all from my youth. And Jesus says, well, what about, what about coveting? What about possessions? And he says, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. And, and the passage goes on to say that that young man was sad at that saying and he went away grieved for he had great possessions. Jesus wasn't saying that you've got to give away all your money and take a vow of poverty in order to be saved. His point was to highlight to this young man that you're trusting in uncertain riches. You've bought into the line that the, the reality of riches in your life means God must be blessing you and everything must be okay and nothing could be further from the truth. Riches are not a sign that everything is okay. You know, we're thankful when God blesses us with prosperity, with things like that. And if our heart is to use it rightly for him, then praise the Lord. But it doesn't mean that we're better than somebody else who has less. And he wanted that young man to recognize that, you know what, if you want to come to Christ, you come humbly. You come not holding up that I've kept all the commandments. You don't come saying, look at all that I have. Everything must be good in my life. God must be doing right by me because otherwise I wouldn't have all this wealth. That's a wrong thinking, and he's confronting that young man with that. And so he realized that that young man needed to let go of his clinging to riches. 
And, and that is the consistent teaching of the scripture. Not that riches are inherently bad, but that the love of them and the pursuit of them and the clinging to them and holding on to them, that is a problem. And that's the way our culture thinks. And it intrudes into our lives, and we've got to be asking ourselves, you know, what is really important to me? Am I putting too much weight on these temporal things that are like withering grass and fading flowers? In verses 10 and 11, he's teaching, his point is that, that riches are but temporal. They'll fade, they'll wither. The things we have wear out and break down and self-destruct. Right? Anybody here own a car? Okay, you know? Even if you're a person like many of us probably are where you never buy a brand new car or rarely buy a brand new car, the fact is cars wear out. You know, we, we, have some, we have some buses out here, you know, and they are sometimes, for those of us on the staff, kind of the bane of our existence. You know, they, they're breaking down and we're having problems. You know what? There was a day when those buses were brand new, shiny, bright, comfortable. Everything was perfect, but no more. And it may not even be that somebody maliciously or did anything destructive to them. It's just the reality that things wear out. My wife has a problem with rental cars. Okay? Our, our van, she, she, you know where I'm going with this, right? Our, our van uh, was uh, in the shop this week, so we, so we rented a car. 2015, nice new car. And, and she went to, to visit Arlene Obert. And the person with her, she was dropping her off in front of it. There were some people walking in front of the car. And as she was dropping that person off, this, uh, this van started backing up towards her. And she saw it coming, you know, in her rearview mirror, is honking the horn. There's people in front of her, so she can't move. And that van proceeded to back into this 2015 rental car. Now, the damage done was, was pretty small. And had it been our car, you know, we'd have just said, So, you know, you, know, you got to go through all the motions. I was telling my, my math class that this is not the first time that that has happened to my dear wife. When we lived in Oregon, same thing. We, we, we needed a car. We had to rent a car for a period of time. We rented a Toyota Corolla from a Toyota dealership. Got a really good deal on it. It had seven miles on it. Seven. Seven miles. Okay? She's sitting at a stoplight. Car's in front of her. Car's behind her. Along comes a truck for uh, some sort of a landscaping company, a flatbed truck. On the back of that flatbed truck is about a 700-pound ground compactor. The guy had failed to strap that ground compactor down onto the flatbed truck. He came around the corner rather rapidly. Those of you who understand anything about centrifugal force know what happens next. My wife is sitting there in the car, and here is this 700-pound object beginning to tumble off of the back of the flatbed truck. And, and out of the grace of God, it didn't land on her. It landed, I think, right behind her in the uh, back seat of that car that formerly had seven miles on it and now is in really bad shape. Okay? So I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't rent cars anymore. I don't, I don't know. But, you know, things get damaged. Things wear out. You know, I, I rented that car, and I walked around, you know, there's a scuff here, there's a scuff. The car's a 2015 car. It was already scuffed up before we even started to, you know, to deal with it, okay? But, but there are things, things that wear down. Our bodies, you know, God has put us in a world where things continually remind us that this is a decaying life, that this is a world that is passing away. We're at a time of year where, where you see the trees, and the leaves are dying, and they are falling off. 
and, and you walk on them and they crunch and break because there's no livelihood or vitality left in them. Everything about this world continually reminds us that it's like a fading flower. It's like withering grass. Why do we want to hold on to it so tight? And James says, you know what? If you're rich, don't hold on to that. Be glad. And, and, and some people think that in this passage he's talking about then the rich people are unbelievers. That's not the point. I think he's talking about the, those who, who God has blessed with riches and yet who are believers. But he says, you know, you have an obstacle because you have those things. And, and the overall context of this first half of, of James chapter 1 is a little bit <coughs> about trials. In verse 12, he's going to go back to the idea of trials. And, and I think it's fair to say that, you know what, it is a trial to be impoverished and it is a trial to be rich. They... they they both have their parallels. Those, those who are impoverished can be tempted to do as Job's wife advocated, curse God and die, right? Just get angry and frustrated with God. And, and those who have the blessing of prosperity can be tempted to forget about God and begin to think that, you know what, it's about me and what I have and what I do. And James says, you know what, rich, poor, doesn't matter. Things fade away. Our, our riches come when we humble ourselves before God. The things of this temporal life are but for a short time. But our relationship with God, that is what is eternal. The promises of God, that's eternal. Our relationship with Him and what we by His grace allow Him to do in our lives, those are the things that truly matter, the things that are really important. But if we cling to vanishing riches, we're missing the things which are far more important. Folks, and we're surrounded by those reminders both in God's Word and in creation. He tells us, don't hold to fading flowers and withering grass. Hold on to your relationship with Him. Look to Him. Embrace and rejoice in and boast in all that you have in Christ. Folks, what we need to do is not focus on possessions and material things. We need to keep our focus on Christ. So I think about this passage, I see comfort for the afflicted. I see affliction for the comfortable. And, and by the way, folks, in comparison to the world at large, the most impoverished of us here are comparatively wealthy. Right? When, you, when you look at the statistics and, and what people live with in this world, you know, we take for granted things that many, many people around the world could only dream of, will never have, will never experience. So, so we all need to be on our guard against that idea of being comfortable. We need to be a bit afflicted if we're getting comfortable. And the third observation I would make is there is an assurance of God's grace for all. James gives us comfort for the afflicted. He gives affliction for the comfortable and the assurance of God's grace for all. I said earlier, that, and I'm not really going to elaborate on that. I mean, that's just kind of self-evident in the overall flow of things. But I said earlier, we live in a culture that is materialistic, that is pleasure-centered, that is focused on the here and now. And, and folks, fellow believers, we need to not get caught in the trap of that kind of thinking. Our focus needs to be on Christ. You know, among many other things, Jesus is the great equalizer in that all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? Everybody comes to him the same way. And the words that James uses, they kind of echo what we find in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, where Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, 
Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory or boast in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Folks, that's where our focus needs to be, on that relationship with Christ. In the end, the rich and the poor stand in exactly the same place. They are both 100% dependent on the grace and mercy of God. If the poor man knows the Lord and the rich man doesn't, both now and in eternity, the poor man is much better off. If the poor man and the rich man both know the Lord, right? Both now and eternity, they are better off not because of their place in society or their status in life, but because they have a relationship with the living God. Let me add one additional point of application this morning for we who are American Christians, and then we'll be done. We do live in a day of unprecedented wealth and luxury and comfort. And the dangerous thing about being comfortable is that we are tempted to just forget about God, forget about his priorities, forget about what he wants to do in and through our lives. We're tempted to buy in to the importance of things and lose sight of why we're here. I read an account from a pastor in Dubai. Okay, I don't know if you know much about Dubai. If you're not familiar with Dubai, it, it brings luxury to a whole new level. Someone has said that the, uh, the national bird of Dubai is the crane. And they say it as a play on words because there are so many cranes used building all the skyscrapers. There's more than 100 skyscrapers being built even as we speak. And this pastor said that you could go to an upscale mall in the city of Dubai, in one city, every week for a year, and you'd never have to go back to the same one more than once. He said the Emirates Mall in Dubai has a full ski mountain in the middle of the mall, a ski hill inside the mall. There's a ski lodge up on the top. There are chairlifts in the mall. Figure that one out. Okay? You know, think about wealth. I mean, there, there it is taking it that boggles the imagination. And, and here's, here's the point that he was making and kind of describing how things were in Dubai. This pastor said that almost everybody who's a member of his church is a believer who, who came to Dubai from someplace around the world to work in Dubai because of its exploding economy. It is the richest place on earth. But he said he observed this. As believers would come there, and they would come to this church, and the church had a ministry mindset of zeal and a gospel emphasis and a desire to reach out with the gospel. And he said people would typically come, and they would be attracted to the church because they had a ministry mindset and because they wanted to let God use them to reach that culture. Well, that sounds great. But here's where he goes from there. He said Without, within about two years, most of those couples have lost their missionary zeal. They get caught up in the affluence and in the wealth and in the luxury and the opportunities of Dubai. And after just a short time, he said, it's difficult even getting them to show up for church services, let alone participate in the ministry or be involved in true gospel endeavors. And he wasn't challenging whether these were real believers or not. His opinion was they came, they were believers, they had the right heart, they had the right spirit. They sit in that culture, and the culture rubs off on them. And he said, I can tell right away the couple who is new to Dubai and the couple who has been here for several years by their willingness and their availability to participate in the 
by their priorities. Folks, it seems to me that that dynamic isn't just happening in Dubai, right? It's, it's here in our nation. It's here in our city. And, and frankly, it's here even in our church. We, we live in a world that puts a premium on material possessions. It's, it takes a commercialized a approach to things. It, it values the things of this earth that ought to be growing strangely dim, but, but they aren't. And we walk in that culture, and we live in that culture, and we view media from that culture, and we rub shoulders with people in that culture, and rather than us being salt and light and influencing them to turn to God, it is influencing us to turn to the things of this world, to the materialism, to the way of thinking of this culture, just like in Dubai. And, and there are, are some of you here, and, and with God as my witness, I have nobody in mind right now. Thankfully, he's given me a blank slate at this moment so that I can say this. But I am guessing. I am guessing that there are some of you here, if you are honest with yourself, you can relate to a time in your life when you served with much more zeal, when you maybe gave out many more tracts, when you invited people frequently to church, when you tried to engage in conversations with people about the things of God, when you gave more sacrificially, when you served more gladly and willingly, when, when your life wasn't focused on whatever is on TV or whatever is going on at work, it was focused upon the things of the Lord, and yet right now it's not so much the case. And you're experiencing what is described for us about the, the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2 that we studied a while back. The left is supposed to end. You're believing. In one sense, you love God. But in another sense, you have let the influences of our culture begin to crowd God farther and farther from your heart, from your soul. And he stands there with arms outstretched and says, look at all I have for you. Look at all that I have given you. Look at all that I have done for you. Why is it you keep stepping away, away, away? Folks, that's the message that I need. Right? I have the privilege of, of you folks all give sacrificially and, you, and, and I get paid to study the word of God and to be engaged in ministry. And yet I, I can feel very much the grabbing of the world to try to steal my soul. And, and, and I think if you're honest, you probably can relate to that. And, and we need to be honest. And we need to recognize that it is a dangerous thing to let the materialism of this world, to let the emphasis on power and popularity and prestige and whatever it may be, to let those things rob you of, of the richness of the relationship that the God of the universe wants to have with you. But he doesn't force his hand. He doesn't make us robots. He leaves us as people who have to make choices. And so, folks, my, my question for you today is, what really is most important to you? And is that which is most important to you really what is and ought to be most important. And let's be honest about that. You know, do you have a keen sense of God's priorities? 
and, and albeit imperfectly, but is your desire to let God direct and move in your life to accomplish his priorities and his purposes for you rather than the things that the world says we should be chasing after. I think it would be good for all of us to get on our knees before a gracious redeemer who has purchased us back from the, from the slave house of sin who has shed his blood and gave his life for us to pay the penalty for our sins once for all. I think we need to say, Lord, I just am getting it wrong. I'm getting distracted. My life gets turned upside down, and things that are going to fade away have become too important to me. I get more focused on the temporary and the here and now than the eternal, and we need to cry out to God and say, forgive me and help me. And folks, if we'll do that, Right? The, the, the remedy for the, for the rich one is to, to glory in being humble, in realizing the desperation that we ought to have for God. And for the impoverished person, the glory is to realize that, you know what, it doesn't matter. You're not missing out on anything. You know, the, the pursuits of, of, of sin and the world, they're, they're pleasures, but for a season, they're temporal, they're fading flowers, they're withering grass. We need to rejoice in the fact that we are rich in Christ. And there's a sense in which we need to embrace both sides of that paradox. We need to say, in one sense, I have many, many possessions that are robbing me of my love for you. I need to be humble. In the other sense, we need to say, as I look at things and say, boy, I don't have that, we need to say, you know what, it doesn't matter because I have Christ. And I have so many things in him. And if we will let God draw our focus and our attention to him, he will radically transform our lives. If we'll humble ourselves like that, God will work. God will help. His grace is sufficient. He is all that we need. Now, if you're here this morning and perhaps you're not a born-again believer, what you need is to begin that relationship with Christ. And, and we'd love to help you with that. And it starts by acknowledging that you are a sinner, that the wages of sin is death, eternal, spiritual, physical death, all those things. But the gift of God is eternal life. And if you're uncertain that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life, if you're thinking that you need to do more or, or be more involved, I am not appealing to people to be more committed to Christ in order to be saved. I'm appealing to people who have come to Christ to now let the Christ life live out within them. If you're here without Christ this morning, what you need is to meet him, come to know him, ask him to be your savior and receive eternal life. And if you're here as a true believer this morning, if you've trusted Jesus for salvation. Still, what you need is Christ. You need his grace to help you keep things right. Sometimes we sing the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it has one statement that says this, My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Folks, we need to let those words echo in our minds and in our hearts a little bit this morning. My richest gain, I need to count it but loss. I need to pour contempt on all those things that I think well of myself about, all my pride, and realize that the true riches are based on my relationship with Christ. James offers us comfort for the afflicted. He challenges the comfortable, but most of all, God offers his grace to all. Let me ask you to stand to your feet, if you would, with heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm just going to have